chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, the book of James 4, 13 to 17. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can reach out to one of the ushers walking through the aisles and they will grab you a Bible. If you don't own one, feel free to take that home and, and keep it as your, your, your own and receive it as a gift from us. Um, okay, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that it would, uh, it would come and have a kind of weight and power and glory as we look at it together, as we reflect on it together. Father, we pray that as we read your written word, as we meditate on your written word, the living word, Christ himself would be among us, and the Holy Spirit would be enlightening our minds and strengthening our heart and having a a ministry that's saving and redeeming us even now as we look by faith into these realities. Lord, help us. Help us. Help our kids as they go off to Sunday school experience the same realities from the risen Christ as they, as they look at your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if your kids are heading off to Sunday school, feel free to, uh, to send them that way. You're dismissed, little ones, if that's for you. Before uh, Isaac comes up, I'd just love to, love to introduce him. Uh, this morning we have a, a guest, really not a guest, Isaac's one, one of ours. He's, Isaac belongs to us. Uh, we, we claim him. Isaac's one of our community group leaders, and this church places a high premium in terms of our values on leadership development and on and Isaac has been just an, an, an awesome addition to our church. He's already uh, come with a, an incredible amount of gifting and teaching. You guys have heard him preach one or two other times here over the last year and a half, and so it was a, a, a no-brainer for us to ask him to join us in this series on James. And so we've got to fellowship with Isaac around the Word over the last several weeks, and uh, we're all eager to hear Isaac minister the Word of God to us. So Isaac, would you come on up, brother, and share the Word with us? So several months ago, uh, I was hired by a man up in Issaquah to take a look at a home that he was thinking about buying. And I thought it was just going to be another house with the usual issues. So when I got to the home, I could see right away that this was not going to be just an ordinary inspection. Uh, This house had been built in the 1940s, somewhere around there, and when it was first built, it was probably a pretty average two-story house, uh, but it had changed a lot over the years. Sometime over in the, the past 80 years since it was built, the owners had done a lot of work. They constructed a giant attached garage with a big attached carport off of that and a, and a huge deck with a finished bedroom beneath it and then enclosed this catwalk that led to a, a mobile home that had its own garage and its own shop. It was just this huge addition after addition. Uh, some of it was well-built. Some of it was not so well-built. 
but what was clear to me was that there was this, this vision that someone had had for this house. Everything had been added with a purpose in mind. It may not have all been well done, but it was certainly intentional. So one of the first things I do when, when I go to a house like this is I want to look at kind of the structure of the house. So I went into the basement. There was an exterior hatch going into the basement, and so I go in there, uh, and I could see uh, right dead center there were some, some pipes, and I could tell there was a bathroom overhead, and I could tell right away that at some point in the past uh, the bathtub had sprung a leak. Uh, it was probably just, just a little drip, uh, and I could see how that drip had kind of started to run down the, the floor joists and onto the beam, it run kind of across the, the floorboards, and no one had ever fixed it. It had probably been like that for, for many years, maybe even decades. Uh, and so the joists and the beams and the posts that were holding up this house were now completely rotted away and crumbling to dust, and in some cases there wasn't really any wood left. There was no structure left to this house. So the owners had had this vision for what they wanted this house to look like. They put their heart and soul into building this thing into what it was. And now, I stood in this basement, and I realized that because they had neglected this one thing, the entire structure was compromised. It was just a disaster. So, I mean, that's a, that's a tragedy, right? The man who'd built this, or who'd hired me, decided, obviously, not to buy the home. Uh, and someone is going to lose a lot of money, and they might even lose their entire house. So how does that story connect with the passage we just read? Uh, so the big idea I think James is leading us towards is right there at the end in verse 17 where he says, he says, so, and this word so connects it to everything that precedes it. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. And that's how James summarizes his point and drives it home. So what James is saying is, is this, and this is kind of a spoiler of my, my big idea, but we'll kind of take a step back and work our way back toward it. But as Christians, we're obligated to seek God's will in our lives rather than pursuing our own goals and our own ambitions. And part of what this means is that we're called to discern the good and do the good that God has put immediately before us. In fact, James tells us that it's, it's a sin to ignore this good or even to set it aside for later. But what do we do instead? We we tend to ignore the good before us because our minds are focused on, on kind of the big picture because we're thinking about the future on what might be and, and we miss what is already. So the problem with that house in Issaquah, it started with just this small leak, just a drip, something that probably could have been fixed in an hour. Uh, but for whatever reason, this one act of good was ignored and plenty of other additions and renovations had been made, but this problem was overlooked. And now the problem is just is severe and expensive, and the entire structure is compromised. So that's kind of the big idea. That's a hint of where I think this passage is, is leading us. Uh, before I get there, let's just take a quick step back. So where are we kind of in, in the book of James? So from the first verses, uh, we remember that James, the younger brother of Jesus, uh, he's writing to Jewish Christians that are dispersed within the Roman Empire. Uh, and today's passage follows just a series of practical reminders uh, that James gives this intended to encourage and teach readers how to live in a secular world. So near the end of chapter 3, going back about a chapter, uh, which uh, Josh preached on a couple weeks ago, so James identified these two issues of jealousy and selfish ambition uh, that are at work within the church. And last week, the passage Ben preached on describes how this jealousy ambition actually leads to turmoil 
in our lives and, and relationships and within the church. And James offers his readers an alternative. In verse 10 of chapter 4, he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So now here at the end of chapter 4, James, I think, is pointing to a specific example of some believers who have kind of taken their own approach. Instead of allowing God to exalt them, uh, they're trying to exalt themselves. They're seeking uh, to do it through their own work and their own efforts, and they're missing what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. So does that describe any of you? I think, I mean, I think it probably does. It certainly describes me more often than not. Uh, so I want to break down what James is trying to tell these, these Jewish believers and you know, really what he's trying to tell us into three kind of underlying realities about life as a believer in Christ. So here are three points, and if you're taking notes, you can write them down. Um, they're pretty simple. The first point James makes about life is that life is short. The second point he makes is that life is meaningful. And then the third point is that life is purposeful. So life is short. Life is meaningful, and life is purposeful. So it's pretty straightforward. But I think what James has to say about these things is actually really profound. Um, and it, it re- certainly has been for me over the past few weeks as I've been looking at this passage. So, Okay, so point one, life is short. So if we're going to take this phrase, life is short, and turn it into kind of its negative, uh, we might say something like, death is inevitable, right? Uh, so when we say life is short, that's, that's really what we mean. We mean that death is certain and it's unpredictable. Um, and that's part of, I think, what James wants us to recognize. So we're going to talk a little bit about death, and I'm hoping it's not going to be as depressing as it sounds. Uh, and James actually never mentions the word death in the passage, but the reality of it is, is certainly there. It's kind of hanging over the entire passage. He wants us to examine our lives in light of the fact of death. He wants us to recognize and acknowledge this reality and, and shape our lives according, accordingly. So look at verses 13 to 14 to begin the passage. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So pretty ordinary uh, kind of businessman sort of mentality. But he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So do you see how James is is trying to make his readers consider their lives in light of death? So when James describes the brevity of life by observing, by saying, you are a mist, he's actually drawing directly from Scripture. If you spent any time at all reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you're probably familiar with this phrase, vanity, vanity. Uh, Some translations say, futile, futile. It's a word that's used more than 30 times in Ecclesiastes. The second verse uses it five times in one verse. But it's from a Hebrew word that literally means vapor or breath or mist. That's exactly the image James is drawing on here. I mean, taking a step back, it's true. Our, our time on earth is just a, a mist. It's a breath, a vapor. We, just, we arrive, we hang around for a moment, and then we go away. So if we're going to live effective, meaningful lives... This fact of death, the fact of the brevity of life, is one we just have to acknowledge. So do you see how James can call it arrogance to ignore it and to assume we have all the time in the world to achieve our successes? Do you see how it's foolish to go on living our lives as if death just isn't true or or doesn't matter? Do you see how foolish it is to make plans and decide on future things, to count our chickens before they hatch, without ever acknowledging that no one can be certain 
that there is a tomorrow, or even the rest of today. So that's the very definition of arrogance, isn't it? In fact, it's arrogance that James goes so far in verse 16 as to call evil. The fact is you just can't state confidently your, your plans for tomorrow because you don't know anything about tomorrow. I mean, in fact, you're, you're one bad decision away from catastrophe. Do you realize that? I mean, it's, it's a kind of a depressing thought, but I mean, you're one bad decision, maybe even made by someone else that you have no control over or say in. How does that reality affect the way you live? So I'm not trying to upset anyone, but I think James is urging us at least recognize this fact and use it as this first stepping stone towards elevating our lives right now. He's not trying to bring us low so we'll be depressed by the idea of death, but what he's saying is that if death is really so certain and our lives could in fact be over today or or tomorrow, then what we are doing right now should reflect that. So how would your life be different if you knew that your time was short? We, We find Jesus... Returning to the same theme, uh, in fact, Jesus gives a parable with a message very similar to this passage in Luke 12, uh, where he's responding to a man who calls out to him. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, which sounds a lot like my five-year-old telling me to make her brother share his toys, but Jesus patiently offers this, a parable, uh, speaking to the kind of greed that this man is showing. It's about a rich landowner who decides to build bigger barns in order to store all of his abundant crops. And the parable ends with God saying to the man, he says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, you're about to die. And God says to him, And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Both Jesus and James come to the same conclusion. Uh, the, the conclusion about the dangers of boasting about tomorrow. Both are reminding us that we're just not in control of the duration of our lives and that life is short and we need to live that way. So James is, is chastising this, these businessmen for speaking confidently about a future that might not even happen. He sees them in asserting control over things that they don't control. Do you, ever, do you ever do anything like this? Do you consider yourself kind of this forward thinker, this visionary looking into the future, making plans? Do you count your profits before you earn them? And what does James say? He says, your life is a mist. And, and Jesus says, this night your soul could be required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? King Solomon in Ecclesiastes gives his own observation on, on death. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 3.19 He makes this observation, for what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. When it comes to life and death, we're not even better than the animals. So why are we boasting in such an uncertain future? So that's, that's my first point. And it may be tough to hear, but life is short. You are going to die, and you have no say at all in how long you will live, and how you think about the future has to reflect this. So do you kind of recoil in fear from death? Do you take seriously all of these warnings that life is a mist, that all is vanity, and all there is to do, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, is to just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? So that's a, kind of a natural response, but I don't think it's a biblical response. And we'll get to the biblical response soon enough, but I, and I think we'll find that it's actually encouraging rather than depressing. Uh, and I just want to get you thinking about this right now, because even though James' audience is pretty specific, he's talking to Jewish businessmen, uh, 
can't we all agree that there's kind of this nugget of truth that applies to us no matter what our situation is? He wants us to kind of snap out of the usual way of thinking. He wants us to have this complete paradigm shift in, how we, in terms of how we plan out our lives. So that, that leads to my second point, because now that we've talked about death, and, and I hope you all agree with James that life is short um, and that death is real and inevitable, let's take a step back and talk about what happens before death. So James wants us to realize that life is meaningful. And you can kind of see how James begins towards, to work towards an alternate worldview, where he began by addressing an error in verse 13. He said, you know, you who say we will go to such and such a town, he now turns it around in verse 15. He says, instead, here's the alternative, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now, just so there's no confusion, James is not teaching that we shouldn't ever make any plans for the future. He doesn't tell us that we should avoid making a profit. He doesn't tell us that we should not make decisions that may benefit ourselves or, or business in the long term. Uh, what he's teaching is that we should be thinking very hard about the reasons we have for doing these things and our confidence in our own abilities to carry them out. Success is not evil, and we're not called to rip up our calendars. Uh, we're not called to destroy our day planners or empty our savings accounts. We all have plans and, and schedules, and the Bible itself teaches very clearly that planning and, and prudent thinking about the future is important. Uh, in fact, I don't think most of you would have made it to church if you hadn't planned in some way. Um, are you planning to get up and go to work or school tomorrow? Well, probably not tomorrow. I guess it's a holiday. Uh, but, you know, keep it up. Good work. You know, plan. Keep yourself organized. The problem James is addressing isn't just planning. Uh, he's ad addressing the underlying arrogance and assumption behind how we often just think about the future. He's providing a far better alternative. It, it's not that we say, I will go to work tomorrow. It's that we boast in the inevitability of it, and we boast our success uh, in our success about going to work. And we boast, we spend our money before we receive it. We're assuming that it will all come to pass just as we have mapped it out. And that's the arrogance he's fighting against. And it's foolish because it's not your plan that gives life meaning. And that's so important to realize. So instead of wasting our time asserting control over uh, the future, James says that it's only God's will that matters. Rather than declaring what we will accomplish, we're to look to the will of God and to be eager for his plans and purposes to come about, even if that means ours don't. So this, this phrase, if the Lord wills, that's not just a Christian password. Uh, it doesn't just, just a word that needs, or a phrase that needs to be said before we just go about our own business. There's nothing intrinsically meaningful or effective about making your own plans and then tacking on the phrase, if the Lord wills. That's not, that's not what James is getting at. And, and we see this throughout the book. We need to humble ourselves and be willing to allow God to take over our lives. Uh, as, a, as he said a few verses earlier, verse, verse I already quoted in, in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you to set aside your own will and accept God's will. That's an act of humility. That's what he's calling us to. So when we ignore God's will, when we make our own plans, follow our own course of actions, we're just trying to exalt ourselves. And that's why James calls it evil. You see the connection? We're, we're lifting ourselves above God in our own lives. And, and it's evil because it leads to everything James has been warning us about over the last couple sections. It leads to this, you know, it's this arrogance that leads to jealousy, to disorder, to fights, to quarrels. Uh, 
when we reject God in favor of our own efforts. That's what James called spiritual adultery back at the beginning of chapter 4. So and now we learn this kind of arrogance. It's, it's both evil and it's unwise because it rejects the rule of God in our lives and it fails to recognize the fact that life is short and, and uncertain. So James is calling us to stop wasting our lives on these vain pursuits and, and instead to redeem our lives Uh, redeem the lives we've been given for the sake of God's will rather than our own. But we're not alone. We're not left to just do these things on our own. God doesn't just send us out and tell us to just do better. The gospel that we preach is not one that's limited to just these future benefits. Jesus didn't die to just save you in the future. Our hope in Christ is not that after we die we'll be just given eternal life and go to heaven that's only part of the gospel. And if that's all we think the gospel is, then we're missing something big. And Jesus died to redeem your present right now. Your life is of a person already saved, not one who will be saved. The life you live right now is what, is, is what Jesus died to redeem. And now James is reminding us that when we continue to pursue our own goals, when we push aside what God wants from us, then we're rejecting the good that Christ died for us to do. We're replacing that good with arrogance and with selfish ambition. And that only leads to fear and and failure because as as Jesus asked in Luke 12, the things you've prepared after you die, whose will they be? Can you see how the gospel gives us a better alternative so that we we no longer have to be afraid of death? So that we we don't have to live with the anxiety It comes with the question like, what if my life is wasted? Or what will happen to everything I've built once I'm gone? So when we're seeking God's will first and foremost, and if we're truly humbling ourselves and allowing his work to be accomplished through us, then we can finally shed all of those fears and anxieties and experience the life God intended for us. Do you see how this frees us from everything we need or from the need to control everything about our lives? when we first recognize that we aren't in control and then surrender our will to the one who actually is in control, that's when our lives are the most meaningful. But more than that, the things we're called to do, we're called to do now because our lives are uncertain, because life is short. We're not called to wait. We're not called to put things off. We're called to do things now. Seeking God's will for our lives puts acts and actions directly in front of us right now. And there's a demand that we not only seek God's will for our lives right now, but that we actually do it right now. So that moves me right into my third point. And I'm actually already partway to to answering this question. But if life is indeed short, and I hope we all can all agree that it is, and if being transformed by the gospel makes life meaningful, then how should we respond in a practical way? So my third point is that James is telling us that life is doesn't just have meaning, but it has purpose. Life is purposeful. But what is that purpose? So that may, may seem like a difficult question to answer because we're all called to different things, aren't we? God's purpose in each of our lives looks a little bit different. But at the same time, I think James begins to give us a sort of universal answer to this question. It's a, an answer that I've actually found extraordinarily helpful and really practical as I've been studying this passage and just thinking about how, how I would apply it to my own life. So let's look at verse 17 again. How does James finish, finish his thought, finish this whole section? He says, So, in other words, therefore, in light of everything I just said, 
Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So you're probably fairly familiar with this verse. You've probably heard it before. Uh, James is describing what we would call a sin of omission. He wants to make it clear that sin isn't just about the things we, we do, the, the bad choices we make, the bad decisions, but it's also about the things we fail to do. A good example is the parable of the Good Samaritan, which you're probably most, f- mostly familiar with. A man is beaten and lying on the side of the road. He needs help only to be passed by by those who could have helped him. Perhaps, you know, as we start to apply the pa- this passage from James, we can imagine that those who failed to help him were just too busy with their own lives. They're, they're too busy accomplishing their own goals to be sidetracked by that inconvenience. So by their failure to do the good directly in front of them, James is saying that they're sinning. But let's not overgeneralize this verse. We all know of plenty of good things we could be doing right now. We could all be dropping everything to go and do good works. We could be any number of places uh, helping or, or serving, and we're all aware of them. But is James condemning us for not immediately just canceling everything in our lives and, and going out and seeking only good works to do? No, I mean, we shouldn't be quick to, to remove this verse from the context. James isn't making this broad, sweeping condemnation against everyone for every, every failure to do, to do good at all times. Uh, he's applying this teaching. He's addressing the very purpose of our short lives and encouraging us uh, to do the good that's in front of us. So we're kind of in the dark. We don't know exactly the specific situation that James is writing to. Um, but let me offer you just a guess as to what he was kind of seeing in the church, what, what he was addressing. So I think there were these kind of dis- successful Jewish uh, businessmen, these merchants, uh, and James had observed just misguided priorities. He'd seen that the focus of their lives was just forward-looking. They were saying things like, I'll go to this city, make a profit, and so on. So they'd set their eyes on what was ahead of them. They were making plans and just assuming they'd be successful. In other words, they were good businessmen, and they were probably successful more often than not. But there was something that James saw that was missing in their plans. They weren't seeking God's will in their lives. They were probably asking God to bless their their business endeavors, but they weren't humbling themselves and asking God to show them what they should be doing right now. And as a result, they were missing the just real, physical, tangible needs that were right under their noses. There was real suffering happening in front of them. Maybe they were even doing this, this with good intentions behind it. Maybe they were saying to themselves, so once I've, once I've gotten su- successful, once I've gotten all the money I need, then I'll be able to turn my focus toward the needs I see. Uh, in fact, then I'll have more means to help, more time to help. But they don't know. They don't know that there is going to be a tomorrow, do they? That's why James has been calling us to, to just these tangible works of faith. Throughout this entire book, he's been calling us to care for orphans and widows, right, in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he calls us to feed and clothe the one who comes in hungry and naked. So these are the kind of needs that were just right in front of these people. But James saw them just going about their business. They were seeking success. They were driven by their arrogance, and they were even boasting in these things. And all the while, they were totally missing the good that they ought to have been doing. They were not living their faith, and James is calling them out on it. I think a lot of us probably do the same thing in different ways, don't we? 
but we all have good excuses. I know I have fantastic excuses for not doing good things. Let's say there are others who are more gifted who can take care of these things, others who have the means to take care of these things. Uh, it's not that we don't want to do good works, but we're just focused on the big picture. We have these visions, and we can't be sidetracked by these things. We see billionaires like Bill Gates uh, who achieve massive fortunes and then after decades of hard work, they finally take a step back and say, okay, what good can I do in the world with all of my money? And I think a lot of us are living kind of a smaller version of that same, uh, that same mindset. So we'll have plenty of time to do good. Uh, but when? Once we retire? Once our lives have stabilized? For me, it's like once my kids have grown, once I don't have diapers to change and nap times to schedule around, right? Then I'll have plenty of time. Do you hear yourself saying things like this? Yeah, I say this all the time. I'm always waiting for that next step in my life when things will get easier and I'll have more time to devote to whatever it is. I don't do the good that I know I should be doing because just the timing isn't right. So, but what does James say? He says that's sin. He says that's, that's a fruit of my fallen condition. So what is the answer? Is it just to like, cry out, you know, carpe diem, seize the day? Is it just to live more just in the moment and to strive to do just more good things right now? So I, in part, yeah, it is that. Uh, he wants us to recognize that there's good that's been placed before us and good that we should be doing right now. God has put real needs in front of us. We, we don't need to be shown that. We know it. He's put physical and spiritual needs right in front of us that we could be helping. And we're called to do that good that he's given us. But I don't want you to just limit this passage to just only be acts of charity, right? Uh, it's not just finding an orphan or a widow to help or someone to, uh, to feed or to clothe. It's not just giving money or going on a mission trip. So we, we do these things if we can, but we, we don't stop there. Those aren't the only good works that God's given us. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 9, look how King Solomon, after he's gone through eight chapters of pondering the futility of life, here's how he kind of begins to summarize his findings. He says, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Later he says, Enjoy life with the wife uh, whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Just think about these examples of good that we should be doing. They're, they're different. Simply stopping long enough to enjoy the food and drink that God's provided for you. That's a form of good. Work hard at whatever you do. And then there's this reminder to just enjoy life with one's wife. That's really powerful. Loving your family well is a good work that God's put right in front of you. Easy to overlook. So let me just say, I don't have to find, look very hard to find ways I struggle to live this out. So when I come home from work after a long day, knowing that I have several more hours of work to do in the office, and my daughter comes up to me and says, Daddy, do you want to play with me? How do I respond to that? When, when my wife wants to have a conversation, but I'm just distracted by a thousand other things and I brush her off. God's given me these good things to do and that's his will for my life right now. And I just stubbornly reject them for the sake of whatever it is I'm trying to achieve on my own. And that's sin. 
So here's my last question as, as I kind of wrap up. Is it enough just to do these good works, to just seek out more good works and, and to do them? So remember that James is building. He's building on ideas he's been developing through the entire book. And back in chapter 2, he reminded us that good works, even the best works, are meaningless on their own. These works are a way of living out the faith that is already in us. So when I fail to do the good work God's put in front of me, what does this say about my heart? What does it say about my faith? Failing to do good works isn't just a sin because it's bad, it's, but because it's a reflection of the sin that's already inside of us. The arrogance and the selfishness that, that define us. Uh, so what James is pushing us towards is an outworking of true genuine faith it's a radical change in our lives brought about by the gospel being planted and bearing fruit within us so when we boast in our arrogance about our great plans for the future and when we try to just cling tightly to control over our lives and our destinies we're just demonstrating a lack of faith and the result of that lack of faith is that we're just blind to the good things we ought to be doing and so James isn't just calling us to, to just do more good things. He's calling us to repentance. He's, he's calling us to recognize our misguided priorities. He's calling us to acknowledge, acknowledge that we're constantly just trying to grab control of our own lives, that we're ignoring his will because we think we just know better. He's calling us to, to turn from these things, uh, to humble ourselves and let God be the source of our exaltation, um, and in, in that state of repentance, he's calling us to stop, to just look around and to see the good he's put in front of us. And so that's, I mean, that's his will for our lives. Let me pray. God, um, this has been so powerful for me as I've been walking through this over the past few weeks. Um, Lord, it's convicting um, just knowing that there is a better way to live my life, God, to a more meaningful, a more purposeful way, um, God, and that it's just, um, it's about humility, it's about uh, accepting that you know better for me, God, and I just pray for everyone here, God, that they recognize that you are a good God, that you want what's best for them, that you know what's best for them, God, so I just pray, um, yeah, just for, for a reorientation of our priorities, Lord, um, for us to just recognize that you uh, and your will are, are good and great and that doing, doing that will offer us a complete transformation of our lives. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a thing that gives me great hope um, and, and encouragement, God. And I just pray that on everyone here. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.